Hello, my name is Robert Haddad. You listen to Catholic versus Catholic. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, if you would please, who you are, what you believe, and how you came to believe what you believe. Sure. What I do at the moment, I work in Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Sydney. I have a position called Head of New Evangelization, which involves faith formation of staff. We have over 9,000 staff in our system of schools, 152 primary and secondary schools. I also have primary responsibility for youth ministry and what we call family educators, that is people who work with parents, who work with students and who work with staff overall. I'm now in the seventh year of that role. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's a wonderful job. Previous to that, I was director of the Confraternity of Christian Doctrine in the Archdiocese of Sydney, and I looked after and responsibility for the 2,500 catechists that went into our public school system. I know that might be a surprise to Americans, but in Sydney, at least, in the New South Wales state, we still have access to public schools once a week. Prior to that, I was director of university chaplaincies. The Archdiocese had set up various uh, personnel working on the secular campuses of University of Sydney, University of New South Wales, University of Technology and Macquarie University. It's a very fruitful apostolate. And prior to that, I worked for 15 years as a Catholic school teacher and religious education coordinator and assistant principal at St. Charles College here in southwest Sydney. It was a wonderful time. It's where I began my work in Catholic education, evangelization, etc. Prior to that, I worked in law. I'm a law graduate and I did a few odd jobs in law, but that was for the first eight years of my professional career. As a hobby, I engage in Catholic apologetics. Uh, I've written 10 books. I have my YouTube channel, uh, website, etc. I try to do what the good American apologists do down here in Australia. And I have a partnership with Perusia Media, which also partners with a lot of organizations in the United States, such as Catholic Answers, etc. I love my work. I thank God I have this type of work. It's, I don't really consider it work. I think it's working for the church, working for God, trying to bring people to the full knowledge and understanding of the Catholic faith and to come to a relationship with God and Jesus Christ through the church Jesus founded, which is a Catholic church. Nice. You don't lean left or right? You're just Catholic? You're not a rad trad or anything like that? Well, look, I actually avoid political labels. I think that can be used in a, uh, in a way that brings about derision or criticism of particular people. I'm fully aware of the politics within the church, left, right, modernist, progressive, right-wing, conservative, traditionalist, etc., I want to do what's right. I want to be Catholic. I call myself Catholic. The term that I call myself by or accept is Maronite Catholic because my background is Maronite. I would go to the old mass on occasions. I'm not someone who's a rad trad. I'm not someone who's just a conservative. I support whatever is good wherever I see it, like St. Thomas Aquinas, wherever he saw truth. He employed that in his argumentation, in his writings. Now, I have to say, I don't see much truth to the left of the spectrum because I'm pursuing what is Catholic truth. I don't have any bias against the old mass, but I'm not a rad trad, so to speak. Yeah. Are you ethnically Lebanese? Yeah, originally I was born in Australia. I'm 55 years of age now. I was born in Sydney, Australia. My parents migrated to Australia, my dad in 1949, and my mother in 1958. 
I was born and bred in Sydney, which is why most people think I'm just a native Australian. I'm very proud to be Australian. I'm very proud to have a Maronite background. I like to merge the two, the best of both within myself. You know, I'm heading up to Maronite Mass in an hour and a half. And I also attend the local Roman Rite parishes where there are good Orthodox priests, you know, preaching and teaching well and, and, and saying the liturgy according to the mind of the church. Nice. I attended my first ever Maronite Mass just a couple of weeks ago. It was beautiful. Oh, that's a nice coincidence. What city do you live in? Montreal, Quebec, Canada. Oh, right. You're in Canada, not the state. Okay. So on a completely random topic, uh, I heard some of your talks and you do talk about footy. Is that AFL or is that uh, soccer or what are you talking about? Australia, particularly Sydney, were very um, pluralistic when it comes to sport. Well, not Melbourne. Melbourne, very one eye. Melbourne and AFL, Australian Rules Football. That's where it originated from, and that's the heartland. But in Sydney, well, firstly, it's rugby league, which is a small sport, but it's very, very popular on the eastern coast of Australia, Queensland and New South Wales. Um, of course, we also have. AFL teams based in Sydney. We have rugby union. We have what we call soccer. I like sport in general without wanting to be obsessed by it. I support uh, Liverpool FC in English Premier League. I support Boston Red Sox in, in uh, Major League Baseball. I don't know who to support in NBA, but you know I, I like them as pastimes. I don't want to get obsessed by them because it's not healthy spiritually. Yeah. Did you hear the Pope's recent interview where he? He said that Lionel Messi is not God. Well, that's good to hear. <laughs> um, the other day, I think it was, what was it, just two days ago, he scored a couple of goals against uh, Manchester United. But for me, as a Liverpool supporter, that's something that's very good. <laughs> but it's, yeah. Uh, one more cultural question, and then I'll move on to serious topics. But what is that dessert you eat that's a big, fluffy kind of marshmallow thing? Yeah, that would be pavlova. It's a culturally Australian invention and really is wonderful. It is. My wife makes very good pavlova. It's originally like Pavlov. It's a Russian name. So it must have been someone who came to Australia from Eastern Europe or something. Or, and um, Australians have just developed it. No, no, it's very good. Speaking of Australian things, what about Cardinal Pell? I have a sneaking suspicion that he's innocent. Do you have any opinion or what's the deal with Cardinal Pell? You can have more than a suspicion if you really look at all the facts. And I've read a lot on this. I know Cardinal Pell personally because he employed me at university chaplaincy at CCD and in the current job I've got. So I, I owe him a lot. So I have to declare that I might have a bias towards you. But when you look at the facts and from a legal perspective, there's no way, shape or form that he could have been convicted beyond reasonable doubt. But I go further than that. I actually assert that the allegations against him are impossible. They could not have occurred. I think there's a conspiracy involved here just simply to destroy a conservative cardinal. And he's notorious for being conservative for over the last 30 years, and he's made a lot of enemies in Australia, both in the secular realm and in the church, particularly in his home state of Victoria and Melbourne, where he was Archbishop for five years in the late 90s, up until 2001, before he came to Sydney. I think it's complete concoction. His appeal will be heard on the 5th and 6th of June, coming up, and I would be completely shocked and staggered and lose all confidence in our judiciary if he's found still to be guilty. Now, recently last year, we had another archbishop, 
Philip Wilson from Adelaide, who was convicted and then on appeal was exonerated. I expect the same for Cardinal Pell. Yeah, I read a book that sort of put together many, many, many examples of false accusations, people convicted that were innocent, not to downplay the actual reality of sick perverts that are predators within the hierarchy of the church, but... Of uh, course they are, and they should be rooted out and condemned without mercy, but the reality is, is that when Pell was appointed to his position in Rome and he was uncovering hitherto secret bank accounts containing over 300 million euros... I have a sneaking suspicion that there were people involved with corruption with respect to the Vatican Bank and finances who wanted him out of the job. The interesting thing that you need to know is that the Victorian police actually advertised publicly for anyone who had information regarding sexual abuse committed around St. Patrick's Cathedral in Melbourne. They didn't name Pell specifically, but this was the first time in Australian police history that police would actually seek to find evidence or to create evidence to create a case. They didn't receive any complaints against Pell. They actually solicited the public for anyone who would come forward to say anything against him, which is outrageous. You don't get that happening anywhere in the Westminster system or Western legal or judicial systems where you get police who have received no complaints actively looking for evidence to destroy someone. That's not me sounding off on some conspiracy theory. That is public record. Yeah. Speaking of conspiracy theories and wacky weirdness, do you have any opinions about theistic evolution versus creationism? Look, I don't believe in the evolutionary process. I don't think it's ever been proven that we can get extra information added to the genome of any creature through the process of positive mutations. I think even Richard Dawkins is on the record of admitting that. I don't believe in the evolutionary process. I believe in punctuated equilibrium. I believe that new life forms appeared in the world through the direct intervention of God. I don't have a problem, and I do actually teach publicly, that it's okay to believe in a universe that's 13.8 billion years of age. I don't think that is the essential issue. What is the essential issue is whether there is a God who's almighty, who created everything by his own infinite power, uh, seen and unseen, visible and invisible, by his word out of nothing, ex nihilo. We must believe in that. We must believe that God is the first cause of everything that exists. Uh, if, and then debates about the age of the earth, for me, come in second place. I'm willing to listen to all the arguments, the pros and cons, about the age of the earth, the age of the solar system, the age of the universe, the origin of life. Um, so I think I don't go to war against Catholics who believe in young earth creationism. I just simply want to hear what their scientific evidence is for that. I don't believe in the evolution of life species where one um, higher life form can emerge from a lower life form. I don't believe that Adam and Eve emerge from pre-human hominids. I believe in a personal, singular couple called Adam and Eve. I believe that all human beings are derived from that original couple. I believe in original sin. I believe that that impacted on humanity deleteriously in many ways. And I believe that since Adam and Eve, we passed, said passed on a wounded human nature to us. And that 
we need redemption through, through Jesus Christ as the new Adam. I believe Adam and Eve are spiritual beings who are uh, directly, immediately created by God, according to what we read in Genesis. Now, maybe my position is a little bit here and there, because there's some things I just don't know and I can't reconcile, for example. I don't lose sleep about it necessarily. <laughs> yeah, neither do I. I'm not going to always ask you about controversial things, but there is one thing I heard in one of your talks about apparitions. Uh, you were pretty open, I thought, about the fact that you think that Medjugorje is demonic. Do you want to confirm that, or would you rather shy away from that topic? Yeah, it's pretty, pretty hard, pretty hard line to say that. Um, I have to say, let me just moderate my language. I don't believe it's from God. I've never believed in Medjugorje. I don't believe the Virgin Mary has appeared every day since mid-1981 to the, those people who claim to see her. I don't actually believe in, the, in all the messages that they are consistent with Catholic teaching. I think we've had a commission that is actually of 25 theologians, archbishops, bishops, etc., who've actually finalized a report and it's been sitting on Pope Francis's desk for a couple of years. I think probably why Pope Francis hasn't acted on it is because he's probably searching for some soft landing, so to speak, for all the good people, and I know many good people, many faithful Catholics, who adhere enthusiastically to Medjugorje, and I've got good Croatian friends who you know, who battle for it, who are all very fine Catholics. And I don't want to have a go into conflict with them over the issue, but, I mean, private apparitions are not part of public revelation. We're not obliged to believe them. I mean, I believe in the ones that are proved. I believe in the Fatimas and the Lourdes and the Guadalupe's and the Rudabucks, and I believe in all those ones that are approved. This one has never been approved at any level by the original local bishops, Zanuck and Peric and the Yugoslav Bishops Conference in the early 90s or anyone else. So I don't need to follow it. Now, if it's not from God, it's either from man or it's from the devil, and there's some evidence to indicate some diabolical influence here. <clears throat> I don't remember more of the particular details at the moment, but um, I'll leave it at that. My f formal position publicly is that it's not from God. Yeah. Well, disobedience is the key, I think, to assessing it. And uh, there was that doctrinal blunder where Mary, the Gospa, allegedly said that she is not the dispenser of all graces. Now, speaking of Mariology, do you think that we're going to get what they call the fifth dogma of Mary? Is that something you look forward to? Not in the... Well, I think we're going to get that in the, um, in the immediate present or future. I think the current mindset in the Vatican would be against more dogmatic definitions that could be ecumenically insensitive. I would support any dogmatic definition, uh, but it needs to be supported by good catechesis and good apologetics so that non-Catholic Christians can get to see what the Catholic Church really means by it. With all dogmatic definitions in the past relating to Mary, the Immaculate Conception, the Assumption, which I fully not only accept, but I'm a defender of, I'm a passionate defender of all the Marian dogmas, we need to make sure that we get the true meaning across to non-Catholics. And that's been our difficulty in the last couple of centuries. There's still plenty of non-Catholic Christians who rail against the Immaculate Conception and Assumption on the basis of misconceptions or distortions. And we need to make sure we get a fifth definition of Mary as the mediatrix of all graces.
which I don't see forthcoming in the immediate term, but if we ever get such a dogma, we need to be prepared to defend it and give a recent explanation as to what that means vis-a-vis, for example, Jesus Christ as the one mediator of salvation, the right hand of the Father. But does it contradict what St. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, 5, or 4 to 5? And we have to understand what it means with vis-a-vis the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the church and his presence immediately among in, in Christian people and the, sacra- and the sacraments and the graces we receive through the sacraments. We have to have to be able to put it in, in put that dogma in the theological puzzle where it sits in relation to all the other teachings so that we have a clear analogy of faith and that it's not something that sits there as a dogma but people can't connect it with other teachings of the church. Mm. As I said earlier, I'm neither left nor right. I just consider myself Catholic, but I do embrace what looks to be like a very left-leaning church today, the sort of progressive pope we have and whatnot. I do like the pope. I do love the pope. And I submit to him in all things that are not sin. But I do have an image in my mind of the church as mother. And the mother is just and protective, but she's also loving and she gives a lot of freedom to her children. And I see the arms of the church being opened up during these sort of uh, if you want to characterize it as a progressive or a left-leaning phase, I see that uh, that God will bring good out of that by attracting people that otherwise might not come in if it were in a more conservative phase. So I see the arms of Mother Church opening and closing and opening and closing and sort of gathering in as many as possible. And I always think about Joseph who was thrown into that pit and then went on to be the savior of the other brothers and how he said to them, don't worry, you meant it for ill, but God used it for the good. And I think about that with some left-leaning popes that even if they have ill will, which I don't believe they do, even if they did have ill will, I think God is using all of salvation history in a way that is marvelous. Can you just comment on that? Yeah, it's a very difficult area to comment on. Um, as someone who sees myself as firmly Catholic, I do worry about some of the things I'm hearing and seeing at the moment. Sometimes I look at a certain websites, which I realize can be rather pessimistic, and I caution myself about what I'm reading so I don't get too depressed. Um, but I am concerned with some aspects of Francis Pontificate. I recently read his exhortation on youth, Christus Vivid, Christ is Alive. There are many wonderful things in it, many beautiful things in it, very inspirational. There are some aspects of what he says that are open-ended and could be problematic. My main concern is that Pope Francis's biggest support base are in national churches that are really in total decay. Germany, the Netherlands, Belgium, Austria, and they want to inflict upon the whole church their way of thinking and acting. Our good conservative churches, like in Poland and Africa, are denigrated. I'm afraid that you know radical ruptures or leanings to the left would not necessarily be healthy for the church. But the national churches or dioceses that have gone left are all in radical decline. Where you see healthy churches that are strong or maintaining the line, they could be labelled as conservative, but I don't like that label. They are just good with Catholic teaching and good with Catholic pastoral care and consistent with that. And the Pope Benedict Emeritus just recently brought out a document giving his take on the root causes of the sexual abuse crisis in the church. 
And you get certain sections of the church, particularly again in Germany, who hold them up to ridicule. And this is my main concern here, that these forces, these powers within the church, seem to be in the ascendant today. And they want to export their model of church to the universal church. But where their model is now operating, it's utterly unsuccessful, utterly fruitless. So what I do when it comes to Pope Francis, I mean, Pope Francis is the Pope. Pope Francis is a legitimate Pope. Pope Francis has brought to our attention certain things we need to focus on from the pastoral care perspective, and he's right to do that. And where Pope Francis has said wonderful and great things, I'm all in support of that. But just some reservations I have. I think my reservations are healthy. I think they're loyal. I think they're certainly loyal to Catholic teaching and practice. And I want to just be very cautious about the more leftist side who are trying to advocate for the church to bless, to endorse same-sex marriage, or have no problem with people cohabiting before marriage, or no problem with second or third marriages. Now, that's where my big gripe is. That's where where these people will drag the church or attempt to, to drag the church to positions that are completely in rupture with scripture, with apostolic tradition, with magisterial teachings over the millennia, and and the, the results of what they will try to do will be disastrous. And we see it. We see these churches led by these people, and I can name countries if you like. We saw the church in Belgium that's almost evaporated. Um, and these people don't believe anymore in evangelization, in conversion, in seeking converts, in having good numbers of children, etc. Um, you don't hear these people speaking about uh, uh, against contraception or abortion. They're not interested in that. They talk about seamless garment. Now, okay, seamless garment is, is fine on paper, but if you're going to talk about seamless garment, you want to be concerned about life in every instance, those who are pre-born, those who are after-born, then fine, that's great. But I don't hear these people talk about the plight of the unborn and abortion issues, etc. How many people are actually actively preaching and teaching the church's teaching against the use of artificial contraception, for example? These teachings need to be upheld because they uphold the family. And without the family, the church will be in a deleterious decline. Uh, and that's I, I want to be a, that type of Catholic who is in staunchly supporting church teaching in defense of the family. Because that's the first line of defense when it comes to defending the church. Mm. Can you just touch really briefly on Judaism and Islam and uh, how they fit into God's plan for humanity? Well, first I'll just reiterate what it says in the Catechism, that in the end, God judges everyone according to their conscience, according to the, the truth they knew and the graces they received. And there are, of course, there are elements and different degrees of elements of truth in Judaism and Islam. And we do have commonalities, but we do have very distinct and powerful differences. We can't ignore that. We can't pretend that there are three ways of salvation here. There's one way of salvation for all of humanity, and that's Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. We all are meant to come, ordinarily, all meant to come to the Father through Him. 
That goes for Jews and Muslims. God is not racist. He doesn't have different covenants for different races. There's one covenant, the new and eternal covenant, that was put in place at the Last Supper that's relevant and applicable and is open to everyone on the planet. Now, with respect to people in other faiths, monotheistic faiths or otherwise, they come before Jesus Christ in his humanity in their particular judgment, and Christ in his love and mercy will judge everyone according to their conscience. How they were faithful to the truth they were aware of, even though they were in error through no fault of their own, and invincible ignorance as we call them. Faithful to the graces that they receive. And if they were sincere and faithful uh, to the graces that God did give them, and he gives everyone sufficient grace to be saved, then they can be saved. But that salvation is through Jesus Christ. It's not through any other individual, etc., or belief system. So that's, that's put in it in a nutshell. I, I do find it problematic to believe that there is, there's a separate covenant for the Jews. I there is no separate covenant for the Jews uh, as distinct from the Christians. The Jews were invited into the same one and eternal covenant, the new and eternal covenant that Jesus Christ established at the last supper. When he said, this is the blood of the new covenant, said for you and for many for the remission of sins, that includes all the Jewish peoples. Now, they are brothers. In, in the sense that we believe in the one true God, the God of Abraham. Islam claims belief in the same God of Abraham. Um, and they hold Jesus as a great prophet. In fact, the Islamic view of Jesus of Nazareth is greater than the Jewish view of Jesus of Nazareth, and that's quite obvious. But I still believe in dialogue with our brothers and sisters in the Jewish and Islamic traditions and those monotheistic faiths, I still believe in open dialogue with them to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour of the entire world and to propose that to them in friendship and charity. Because uh, that's our obligation. That's our obligation. That's our baptismal obligation to proclaim the gospel to all nations. Um, in the end, they're natural children of God. In the end, God will judge everybody. In the end, God desires their salvation, that they come to the knowledge of truth and walk the way of salvation. But it's the church is, as an instrument of, of Christ in the world to still proclaim Jesus Christ to Jews and Muslims. I work in RCIA with my parish, which is a Maronite parish, and I've been doing that for nearly 10 years. And every year we have two or three people of the Muslim faith seeking to be received, baptized, and received into Catholicism. And I believe in that. And I've never been involved in any conversion process of a, someone from the Jewish faith, but I do know of Jews who've converted to the fullness of Judaism, as you aptly put it. I still believe in that work. I think it's outrageous for anyone to not seek to welcome someone who wants to be baptized and into the Catholic Church. This is what I call false ecumenism. There are legitimate forms of ecumenism and ecumenical cooperation with people of other Christian denominations and people of other religions. I think that's absolutely necessary in our social context today in the world. But it's a false ecumenism to tell someone who wants to enter the Catholic Church there's no need to. 
Because we are, according to the Second Vatican Council, the Catholic Church is the Church Christ founded and has the fullness not only of truth but of the means of salvation. So if we are not enthusiastic about bringing people to the fullness of truth and the means of salvation, then we're not really caring for those people and their ultimate salvation. Mm. I sort of have an idea, I have an I've developed an idea of three steps into the Catholic Church. The first step, if you're an atheist, is you discover that there's a first cause. That's the god of classical theism or monotheism. The second step is through looking at history, where you ask the question, who is Jesus Christ? And the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims all have different stories about who Jesus Christ is. And I think it's very obvious that he is the promised Jewish Messiah. And then the third and final step into the Catholic Church is by, once we've established that there is a God and that he incarnated as Jesus Christ, we need to look at the question of authority. Where did we get the canon of scripture? Where do we settle questions about dogma and doctrine? So this is a very simplified overview of three steps into the Catholic Church, but there is no alternative. There is no good argument. I've never, ever encountered any good arguments against any of those three steps. You're right, and you're absolutely right, and you're following the classical pathway of natural Christian and Catholic apologetics, but the problem you're up against, and that I'm up against, and that we live in postmodernist times, where young people in particular don't think logically anymore. They don't believe there is truth, and even if there did exist truth, they don't believe it's discoverable. Now, we create our own truth, our own uh, personal um, narratives rather than the meta-narrative of Judeo-Christianity that gives an explanation for all things in the universe. That's what we're up against. We're up against young generations now who are not even... Uh, they don't not not only do they do not possess truth, they haven't been given truth, but they're told there is no truth, and they don't have a logical process in the way they think. And when they encounter arguments, their main response when they encounter these arguments that you mentioned, some of them will respond, "Well, that's true for you, but not for me." And uh, yet, logic has a power. You see it, I see it. Not everyone sees it. When I get comments on my YouTube channel about particular videos, and I mainly get non-Catholic, I get Protestant, Evangelical, Baptist, Pentecostal people who put comments on various videos. There's a lot of lack of logic. They don't have this sequential pattern that you mentioned of, you know, believing first in God, believing in the God of the Christians, believing in Jesus Christ, believing in the church that Jesus founded. They don't think that way. because There's a lot of inbuilt prejudice that they receive early on in their lives. And unfortunately, we've contributed to building that prejudice for our own scandals, our own sin. And when you, when you want to try and say, you know what? There is a God. These are the arguments for God. And which is the true God? Well, it's the Christian God for these reasons. And that's why Jesus Christ is true God and true man and the way, the truth, and the light. And we look historically, we look at Scripture and Jesus found the church. Which is that church from the historical perspective? Well, it's the Catholic Church. You can and you should put forward that argument. Then you get someone throwing this back at you. Yeah, but what about all the pedophile scandals? How can the Catholic Church be the true church? How can it be one holy Catholic? If How can it be holy when you've got all these pedophiles operating? This is the type of pushback you get. That's, that type of argument is a motive. It's based on fact, but it's not logical to rebut 
an argument, uh, a historical argument or scriptural arguments about the foundation of the Catholic Church with arguments relating to scandal today. But people don't think logically. It is for sure a sin to scandalize, but it is also a sin, don't forget, to be scandalized, to allow yourself to be scandalized by those who commit the sin of scandalizing, right? Well, that's true, but unfortunately, some people are just so poorly formed, ignorant through no fault of their own, who can be easily scandalized through no fault of their own. I mean, you know, if I wasn't Catholic, if I didn't hold to what you believe, if I, didn't, if I wasn't involved in Catholic teaching for the last 30 years and apologetics, you know, and I looked at the Catholic Church from outside, and all I'm hearing in the media is scandal after scandal after scandal, whether it be pedophilic or homosexual or heterosexual, or this priest with that woman, or that bishop with that woman, or this priest with that man, or what am I supposed to think about the Catholic Church? Where do I see its holiness? I can't see its holiness in the public realm, in society, through the media. I'm hearing and seeing just scandal. So I can be scandalized through no fault of my own because I don't have immediate access to Catholic teaching, the beauty of the Catholic Church, the saints that you mentioned, the doctors, the fathers of the church. Ordinary people don't have those things on their shelves just to pull off and read. And how many young Catholics in our schools who still don't know themselves, they've never received them? Yeah. So just very quickly, uh, name for me, if you would, please, three of your favorite saints, and don't include Mary because she's everyone's top favorite. Well, that's true. Good way well, I don't know if I can answer that, but I do, you know, when it comes to certain saints that really stand out for me, you know, St. Dominic is big, St. Catherine of Siena is big, St. Teresa of Avila is big, St. Ignatius of Loyola is big. I mean, they're the ones I've drawn from in my own role as a teacher, as a proclaimer, as an evangelist, in spirituality. There are many more. I probably should mention dozens more, you know, have had some influence on me. My favorite spiritual writings, Imitation of Christ, Soul of the Apostolate, they're two that influenced me very heavily over the decades. Who wrote Soul of the Apostolate? Dom Chautard. Okay. You should get the book and read it. Okay. I mean, I should have mentioned that Charles McLeuf is very big in my life. How could I forget him as a Maronite? I'm reading his homily at the moment. Oh, Saint Charbel. Mm. Yeah, okay, yeah. The greatest miracle worker of the last century, without a doubt. Have you heard about Saint Brother Andre here in Montreal? No. Andre no. Bassett, I'll send you a link. He was a very lowly, humble, uneducated doorman, and he had a vision to build a church for Saint Joseph. I'm sure it was a great time. Yeah. Mm. Um, my favorite saints, just so you know, St. Augustine, St. Anselm. I've always loved John the Baptist. Of course, I love St. Paul. I love, uh, in more recent times, uh, Alphonsus Liguri, uh, the Curé of ours, St. John Vianney, Francis de Sales. Um, That's, yeah, of course, and I love St. Francis de Sales. It's impossible to answer a question, my three favorite saints with any real justice. Yeah, not three, but 30 times three, maybe. So I do ask my guests to end off my shows with a little positive message of hope. So just to end the show, what do you think you might be able to say to the anonymous listener who's out there listening now? There's nothing to prevent you or 
wherever you are, whatever your situation, to talk to Jesus one-on-one as a friend. When I'm working with staff, adults, educators, sometimes I've said to them, if you take nothing from what I'm saying today, just take this. Have Jesus Christ as your friend, your best friend, your personal friend, that you can talk to at any time, anywhere, no matter what your situation or, or where you are at the moment. Then everything else would follow. Follow Jesus as your friend. Have him as your best friend. Everything will follow after that. If you like your worldview, if you think it's swell, if you've got some questions, ask me and I'll tell. All you've got to do is ask. All you've got to do is ask.